We are studying the Ten Commandments, and today we get to the Seventh Commandment, one that is broken so often that, sadly, it's almost become commonplace. Exodus 20, 14, you shall not commit adultery. Adultery is a sin of a married man having sexual relations with anyone other than his wife, or a married woman having sexual relationships with anyone other than her husband. There's not an out. There's not an exception to the rule. The Bible doesn't say you shall not commit adultery unless you are unhappy in your marriage. It doesn't say you shall not commit adultery unless your spouse cheated on you. It doesn't say you shall not commit adultery unless your needs aren't being met. This is about as clear cut as a commandment can get. Don't have sex with someone that's not your spouse. Yet in spite of God's command, in over one-third of marriages, one or both partners admit to cheating. 22% of men say that they've cheated. 14% of women admit to cheating. People who have cheated before are 350% times more likely to cheat again. Surprisingly, affairs are most likely to occur in the first two years of marriage. The challenge is that's when you're least likely to get help is when you're most likely to have an affair. 35% of men and women admit to cheating while on a business trip. 9% of men admit that they might have an affair to get back at a spouse while 14% of women admit that they might have an affair to get back at a spouse. 10% of affairs begin online. And 40% of the time, online affairs turn into physical affairs. 74% of men say that they would cheat if they knew they could get away with it, while 68% of women said the same thing. Interestingly, though, is 78% of men and 84% of women agree that it's wrong to commit adultery. Even though they, they agree that it's wrong to disobey the seventh commandment, they still commit the sin. Sexual sin is a devastating enemy. Lives are ruined. Churches are devastated. Marriages are destroyed. And families are torn apart. If you're single or you're not married, don't tune me out. In fact, listen even more closely. You can be a part of turning these statistics around by applying these principles to your life. God said in the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. You might say, well, I look at pornography, but I haven't had an affair. Or I'm talking online to someone I used to date, but it's harmless. It's not like we're going to have sex. Well, we could congratulate you on technically following the Seventh Commandment if it wasn't for Jesus' most famous message, the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. Right? So of course you shouldn't do that. It's clearly a sin. It can destroy your reputation and your marriage and do irreparable harm to your family. That's probably what the crowd thought that day. But you know Jesus, he had to raise the bar and he didn't stop there. 
He continued, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I imagine that day that the crowd grew quiet. You see, Jesus raised the bar in a big way. Not only did he forbid adultery, he said you were guilty if you even looked at someone with lust in your heart. If you watch a movie in order to see nudity, if you secretly look at pictures online or on your phone, if you undress someone with your eyes, if you look at them and fantasize about having sex with them, Jesus said that if you look at someone with lust, you are guilty of committing adultery in your heart. There are basically three levels of adultery. And the first one is an affair of the mind. Here's what we know is that every sinful action starts with a sinful thought. Fantasizing about having sex with someone who is not your spouse removes one barrier. Viewing sexually stimulating images feeds your thoughts the wrong way. The more you think about it, the more likely it is to move to the next level, affairs of the heart, sometimes referred to as emotional affairs. Listen to me. Emotional affairs are affairs. An emotional affair is not just thinking about wishing for or desiring. In an emotional affair, people do more than just think or imagine. They talk. They text. They exchange Facebook messages. They communicate and they share. In an emotional affair, you share things that shouldn't be shared outside of your marriage. Listen to this quote from an article in Psychology Today titled Emotional Affairs, Why They Hurt So Much. This is almost always people involved in these verbal trysts maintain that if there is no physical contact, then nothing threatening is going on. Yet those who stumble upon evidence of a partner's growing enchantment with such a friend almost always views this differently. It feels terrible to them. Someone has stepped into emotional territory previously reserved for them to which they used to have free and exclusive access. Now there are sections of this fear that belong to someone else that are off limits to them and have become private. You see, emotional affairs destroy marriages and families. Affairs of the mind and affairs of the heart ultimately lead to affairs of the body. It's not an oversimplification to say if you never break the seventh commandment in your mind or your heart, you'll never break it with your body. Okay, I I think we all share a common understanding of this commandment. I hope your, your, your heart is grieved at the thought of breaking it in your mind, in your heart, in your body. But the reality is me, the Bible... And Jesus saying, don't do it, obviously isn't enough. We need something more. My goal is to stop adultery before it starts. For you to put some powerful and helpful prevention steps in place before adultery ruins your marriage or someone else's marriage. I want to share with you 10 steps to affair-proof your message, your, your marriage. Ten steps to affair-proof your marriage. 
Once again, if you're single, don't tune me out. Okay, learn these principles now so that you can build a strong marriage later. Number one, resolve issues together. Resolve issues together. When Tina and I first got married, if a tough issue came up, I would want to talk about it right then when it happened so that we could discuss it and get it over with. I was ready to talk it out, hash it out, so that we could come to a conclusion so that I could move on. Tina, on the other hand, wanted to ignore the issue for a time. She didn't want to talk about it. She didn't want to discuss it right then. She wanted to wait. For whatever reason that was. The reality was she knew herself and didn't want to say something that she would end up regretting. So she didn't want to discuss it. See, other people want to ignore their problems. They don't deal with it. They pretend like it isn't there in hopes that it will all just go away. But it doesn't work. And so what did we do after a time? We come back together and we talk about it. Why? Because the goal isn't for the problem just to go away. The goal is to work through the issue and to resolve it and stay at the table. Listen, some people are are different. And as conflict progresses, their goal is not to work through the issue or resolve it. Their goal is to win. That's the wrong objective. The goal is not winning. The goal is to work through the issues, resolve them, and stay at the table. Now, others try to inflict pain with their words or their actions. They want to win by making the other person hurt. That's not the goal. Matter of fact, when you do that, you both lose. The goal is to work through the issues and stay at the table. Other people have childish reactions, right? It reminds me of kids when they get mad when they're out playing games, and what do they do? They just take their ball and go home, right? And some people, that's how they fight. They withdraw, and they leave the situation altogether. They say things like, that's difficult. I'm out. Forget you. You've got to determine your goal. The goal is not to ignore, to win, to hurt, or withdraw. The goal is to follow the conversation and resolve the issue together. Number two, you've got to train your thoughts. Sexual sin starts in the mind. You view pornography. You allow yourself to entertain thoughts about someone other than your spouse. You imagine yourself with another person. Those thoughts are not innocent. They're dangerous. Stop it. Stop here. Stop now. Listen, a a key to training your thoughts is control your input. You guys have heard the adage, garbage in, garbage out. Control your input. Listen, that's the reason why we don't go to R-rated movies. It's the reason that I don't have HBO or Cinemax in my house. Right? People tell me I can handle it. 
It doesn't affect me. Listen, after reading Jesus' words, I find it very hard to believe that. Paul wrote in Philippians 4, 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. When you have lustful thoughts, it's not enough to try to not have lustful thoughts. Right? It's not enough to go, ooh, lustful thought, lustful thoughts. Think about grandma, think about grandma, think about grandma. That's weird. Instead, what you've got to do is redirect your thoughts. Let me show you what I'm talking about. You're not capable of thinking about two things at once. Oh. Right now, if I put this here on the table and I tell you not to think about the rainbow-colored teddy bear right here in front of me, and I tell you, whatever you do, don't think about this bear. What's the first thing you're going to think about? The bear. So if it doesn't work with a physical object that's in front of you, what makes you dumb enough to think that it works with the things in our mind? The very thing that we try not to think about becomes the very thing that grabs all of our attention. You know, what's everybody thinking about? The bear, right? So I'm going to put it in here so it won't distract us. Listen, you have to decide in advance where you're going to redirect your thoughts. A great way to redirect your thoughts is to memorize Scripture. Going over and over Scripture creates a well-worn path away from temptation. Redirect your thoughts quickly and immediately. Don't dwell on fantasies and lust. Move on. Listen, I've read a lot of books and I've listened to a lot of speakers. I've heard a lot of detailed advice on how you should respond when faced with temptation. You can read the books, but I can simplify the entire thing for you. If you'll follow this next principle, you'll be able to withstand temptation every time. Here it is. Get your pens ready. You ready for it? Number three, when faced with temptation, run. Run. You mean figuratively, right? No, I mean tie up your stinking sneakers and run as fast as you can in the opposite direction. Come on, Pastor Jason, I'll look like a fool if I do that. Listen, you might look like a fool, but you'll be a fool with a healthy marriage, a happy home, and a functional family. You'll save yourself years of heartache, sorrow, and regret. You'll avoid devastating the person you love the most and destroying your testimony. Listen, I don't know about you, but I'd rather be a running fool than a standing failure. Listen, I guarantee you, if you see that woman or that man walking towards you and they say something like, would you like to have dinner with me? And when they do, you scream as loud as you can, I love my wife! And you take off running the opposite direction, I guarantee you they're never going to ask you again. Listen, and it's going to be over. They're done. Trust me. Run. Get as far away from temptation as you can, as fast as you can. Run the other way. 
I'm going to give you a principle here. Embarrass sin before it embarrasses you. Embarrass sin before it embarrasses you. Well, Pastor Jason, if I yell that, like if I'm a student and this girl's coming up and she's looking awesome and I'm having a hard time controlling my, my thoughts and she comes walking up, she's like, hey, however girls do it now, I don't know, I've been out of the game for so long, but they're like, hey, and you just look at them and go, sin, and take off running. Can I tell you, you're not going to have that issue anymore. Listen. It's funny, but when you embarrass sin, it can't embarrass you. But if you don't, you'll end up embarrassed because it will come out. Ephesians says, whatever is done in the dark will be made light. Run the opposite direction. Practically, it may mean that you've got to change jobs. It may mean that you have to delete your social media accounts. It may mean that maybe you even have to move or or change phone numbers. Well, Pastor Jason, I can't change my phone number. I can't delete Instagram. Are you kidding me? Sure, that's a hassle. But think about it. It's a lot less expensive, a lot less time-consuming, and a lot less emotionally draining than divorce. Number four. Recognize when you're vulnerable. Psychologists have identified the factors that make you the most vulnerable to temptation and sexual sin. You're most vulnerable when you're hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. Memorize that acronym. Hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. HALT. And watch carefully for your vulnerable times. If you travel for business at all, you might identify with this, right? You don't want to eat another meal by yourself. You're hungry both physically and emotionally. Maybe you missed a flight, and so you're angry. You're spending the evening in a hotel room. And you're lonely. You've been traveling all day. And you're tired. You see, these are the moments when it's all too easy to turn on the TV to a pay-per-view movie, to head to the hotel bar just to be around other people, or find yourself at the wrong place on the internet. Be aware of these times. Have your guard up more when you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. Never forget that anyone is capable of failure. Be cautious. Put safeguards and guardrails in place. One of the most important safeguards that you can put into place is to establish accountability in your marriage. The dictionary definition of accountable is subject to the obligation to report, responsible, and answerable. My definition of accountability is answering for and giving report of your actions, words, attitudes, or behavior, and owning your decisions and your actions. If you're accountable, if you share where you're going and what you will do, if you're accountable, your spouse will never have to investigate. 
Accountable spouses never have to hire a private investigator. Don't make them try to figure out where you are or what you're doing. Tell them. Accountability is your friend. The reality is that I try to avoid privacy and embrace accountability. There's one way to do it. In marriage, all passwords should be shared. There's no such thing as private. Tina has my social media and my computer passwords. Many people have the passcode to unlock my phone, including all of my kids. I live, work, and do life together because there is safety in numbers. Pastor Jason, why all those safeguards? Are you worried you're going to do something wrong? I'm not planning to do wrong, but I don't think anyone plans to fail. They fail because they don't put a plan in place to prevent failures. I intentionally put people and accountability systems around me. So if I'm ever tempted, I've got lots of people around me to sound the alarm. I have pastors that I answer to that get a a view of what I look at on the internet. They get a weekly email that shows everything that I look at on my phone or on my computer. Listen, the goal is to have so many people in your life that you're accountable to. There is no way that you could possibly have an affair even if you wanted to. Accountability is important because failure happens in isolation. Failure happens when you don't fear getting caught. Failure happens when you answer to no one but yourself. Listen, there is wonderful safety in numbers. One of our core values is everything is better in teams. Number six, don't focus on the negatives. Instead, find and celebrate the positives. It's more fun, it's more productive, and it's definitely much healthier. I love the way Pastor Craig Groeschel says it in his book, Soul Detox. Listen to what he wrote. He said, you always find what you are looking for. Think about the difference between two birds, a vulture and a hummingbird. Vultures soar high in the sky, looking and searching. What does a vulture find? Dead things. The ugly, oversized bird doesn't stop until he finds lifeless, rotting roadkill. Contrast the vulture to the hummingbird. With wings flapping 20 beats a second, what does a small bird find? Not dead things and disgusting rancid meat, but instead sweet, life-giving nectar. Daily, each of the birds finds what he's looking for. The same is true for you. You can be on a roadkill diet, or you can find nectar in each day. It's up to you because you will find what you search for. If you search for and look for the best in your spouse, you will find it. If you look for something to criticize, you'll find that. It's true in marriage. It's true in church. It's true in life. What you 
you will find what you seek. You will find what you seek. When I talk with, with couples that are having a, a hard time, I often ask, what caused you to fall in love with him or her in the first place? What was the attraction? And often, the very thing that was the biggest attraction becomes the biggest irritant. Let me explain. One of the reasons that I was first attracted to Tina was her fun-loving passion for reaching and teaching kids. The very first time I met her, she was doing ministry to kids. Now, I get frustrated when I'm lying in bed and she starts telling me about one of the kids in her class when all I want to do is scroll through Facebook and watch stupid videos. Right? Now I get frustrated every time that we have to stop at every single target that we run into for something for her kids in her class. Because it helps her kids learn. I have to remind myself often that's what I loved and love about her. The reality, though, is Tina and I are radically different. I love watching sports and comedies. Tina, on the other hand, likes watching psychological thrillers and movies on the Hallmark Channel. Look, you've heard me say it before. I'll say it again. They're all the same. They are. I am an outgoing extrovert that can talk to just about anybody. Tina, on the other hand, is a quiet introvert. I love to be out of the house. If I'm cooped up and I'm sick and I'm at the house all day long, I will get out and go get a drink at Sonic just to leave the house. Tina, on the other hand, is content at staying home. I have to be doing something. Tina is okay with just sitting and reading a book for hours. I am not very sensitive. Tina, on the other hand, is very sensitive. I am gifted at connecting with teenagers and adults, while Tina is gifted at connecting with kids. I don't try to change Tina much, and, and the reality is she doesn't try to change me. We love each other in spite of our differences. In fact, we probably love each other more because of our differences. Man, I can't imagine being married to someone else like me. That would be miserable. There are so many potential differences. Savers versus spenders. Extroverts versus introverts. Loud versus quiet. Spontaneous versus planners. You see, God puts you with someone who is strong where you are weak and vice versa. It's a part of his design. Paul wrote, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Different people, 
different gifts, yet God is at work in all of them. Celebrate those differences. Allow the reason you fell in love to be the reason you stay in love. Some of you need to go home and talk about why you fell in love with each other. It's also tempting to point out everything that your spouse needs to change. It doesn't take long to make the list, does it? Unfortunately, that list often comes out in a destructive way. So number eight, instead of changing your spouse, change you. This should be your goal, to ask yourself every day, what can I do or what can I say that will let my wife be her very best? What can I change in me that will bring out the very best in my husband? You see, what each spouse, when each spouse makes that their goal, it's amazing how God molds and shapes you as a couple. When you focus on making changes in yourself instead of forcing changes in your spouse, you'll, you'll be a part of them realizing their God-given purpose. That's a powerful and uniting force. Number nine, ask for help. In your marriage and ultimately in your family, when something isn't working, ask for help. Too many times you decide, we can't tell anyone about it. We, we can't involve anyone else. We'll figure it out and we'll fix it on our own. Listen, that doesn't make any sense. If you broke it, what makes you think that you can fix it? If your relational skills got it that way, are those same relational skills really going to make it better? You think if we don't talk about it, if we don't fight about it, it'll just work itself out. It doesn't work. You wouldn't do that with your lawnmower. Right? I, I know it won't start, but, but if we just leave it alone long enough over in the corner of the yard, it's going to fix itself. You wouldn't do that with your TV. I know there's not a picture, but, but let's not make the TV mad by opening that whole issue up. Let's just listen to the sound without the picture. If we do it long enough, the picture will come back. You wouldn't do that with a car. I know there's something leaking on the ground, and there's a weird noise, but let's not make an issue out of it. Let's just be real quiet around the car. Let's just give it some space. It'll quit leaking. The noise will stop. If we ignore it long enough, it will fix itself. It's foolish to think that, that with time, your lawnmower will be okay. You have to deal with it. It's foolish to think your TV picture will just return. You've got to fix it. It's foolish to expect your car to heal itself. It requires help. And I know you, you're ahead of me, but, but do you get it? What matters to you most? Your lawnmower, your television, your car, or your marriage? I don't understand why people wait until there's a crisis to ask for help. Actually, I do understand. It's pride. 
They don't want anyone to think that they're struggling, that they're having problems, or that they need help. Listen, it's foolish to wait for failure before asking for help. Listen, you've never been married before. You've never had children. We don't expect you to know everything. There's going to be some challenges that you didn't anticipate and things you don't understand. Don't wait until something crashes. Don't wait until you've got a crisis. Instead, ask for help at the very first sign of a struggle. And don't, don't you dare let embarrassment stop you from getting help. That is not embarrassment, it's pride. And pride is mentioned time and time again in the Bible is sin. Come on, does your ego really matter more than your marriage? I talk to people and they say, well, we really don't have time for counseling. Really? Do you have time for a divorce? Will that be easier on your time and your emotions? Well, we can't afford counseling. Have you checked out how much lawyers charge per hour? In your marriage, when something isn't working, ask for help. Listen, this is very important. As you ask for help, get help in the right places. There is no shortage of people with advice. Right? It's important for you to listen to the right voices and ignore the wrong voices. Minimize advice from people who have wrecked their own lives and marriages. Listen, you shouldn't be getting advice from your grandmother who's had five divorces and seven husbands. Interestingly, though, some of you guys are trying to do the math. Interestingly, though, it's usually people who have messed up the most who have the most to say about it. And although you can learn from the negative, I did this wrong. There's a flaw to that kind of learning. People who messed up assume they know what went wrong. Well, if they knew what went wrong, why didn't they fix it? The problem is they might be identifying the wrong thing. They don't know. They can't really know. They know what doesn't work. You don't need that. You already know that. You want to know what does work. When you have a big problem, you call a mechanic or you call a repairman. If they come out to your house, it costs a lot of money. Right? Even if it turns out to be a small problem. There's another type of of work that costs much less. It's called preventative maintenance. The basic theory of preventative maintenance is if you take care of something the right way and you maintain it, you won't have a big crisis and it won't cost a lot of money when you least expect it. I learned this the hard way with my 1979 Chevy Cheyenne. It was an awesomely awful truck. It had 2 by 55 mile per hour wind air conditioning when the windows were down. Some of you guys remember that. Right? The only power steering it had was my biceps. I had to roll the windows down, not like this, like this. And then sometimes it would get stuck, and you'd have to like put your body weight on it to try and get it. And then if you did that the wrong way, the handle would snap off. And then you were getting wet or you were going to be hot, depending on where it happened. 
The best part of this truck, it was baby poop green. It was hideous, but it ran well. I'd had the truck for well over a year, and I was driving it home from the county ag show, and all of a sudden, I heard a loud noise from under the hood, and all of a sudden, my truck died. It wouldn't go anywhere. Come to find out, when I called my dad and told him what happened, he told me I probably blew the engine. A friend of mine came out and looked under the hood, and he asked me, he said, when was the last time you put water in the engine? And I looked at him with all assurance. I'm like, you don't put water in an engine. You put oil in an engine. He goes, you know you should put water or coolant in there so that it keeps your engine cool. And I'm going, I do now. I had the wrong answer. And what happened is I ended up having to buy a brand new engine. If you just put a little bit of water in your battery, or you just put a little bit of coolant in your vehicle, if you change the oil, if you put air in the tires, you can avoid a big car crisis. But if you wait until something breaks to give it attention, several things are true. It's more difficult to fix. It takes more time to fix. It costs more money to fix. And it can be so broke that you can't fix it. There's no doubt that preventative maintenance is cheaper than a crisis. You take care of the stuff that you care about. That's why you change the oil in your car. You change the the filter or whatever you're supposed to do with your air conditioner. And you do whatever it is you're supposed to do with your washing machine. But, But whenever it comes to your marriage, you don't do anything until there's a crisis. That doesn't make sense. I challenge you, regardless of how long you've been married, do a marriage refresh. Practice some preventative maintenance. A couple years ago, the lead pastor of our network that we're a part of, Pastor Rod Loy, wrote a book about marriage. It was... It started out as marital advice for his son, Tyler, and his fiancee, Emily. Um, Tina and I actually remember it because he would post it on Facebook every day, and every night we would read the, these, these pieces of advice. And what happened is it ended up going viral, and his publisher reached out to him and said, hey, we think you should put this into a book. And he at first pushed back and was like, no, I'm not going to do that. And, and so he finally did. And, and he actually lost an argument with the publisher about the title. The title is called After the Honeymoon, which unfortunately makes people think it's just for newly married couples. Um, but the reality is it's not. This book is designed as a 90-day refresh for your marriage. However long you've been married, however old you are, this book is designed for a 90-day refresh. And I challenge you to take 10 minutes for 90 days and do some preventative maintenance on the most important relationship in your life. There's a table out in the lobby, and today and today only, you can get a copy of the book for $5. Normal price is $15, but you can get it today for $5. 
Spend 10 minutes, spend some time, and spend five bucks on your marriage. And spend 10 minutes a day doing some preventative maintenance. Exodus 20:14, you shall not commit adultery. Instead of seeing that as a moment, make it a daily quest. Every day, take active steps to avoid breaking that commandment. Listen, I want your marriage to be healthy and whole. I want your relationship to be pure and pleasing to God. That doesn't happen by accident. That only happens when you make it a regular priority in your life. Would you bow your heads with me? I want to pray for you. I recognize today that there's multiple audiences here today as I talk. There are some of you that have great and wonderful and healthy marriages, and I am thankful for that. I still challenge you to do the refresh, but I thank God together for you. There are others of you that that your marriage currently has some tension in it. You haven't wanted to admit that, and I've probably said something today that challenged you. Don't withdraw. Talk about it. Pick up the book. If you can't afford the book, take one for free. Tina and I will pay for it. Start the process. Others of you have some hurt because you have failed marriages in your past. And this is kind of tender for you. I want to pray for you because God still wants your relationships to be healthy. And finally, there's some of you in here that you're not married yet. And you're wondering how this helps you. Listen, keep the outline because one day you're going to need it. And begin to apply healthy relationship principles in your life. Lord, today I pray over families. God, today I thank you for husbands and wives who have wonderful and healthy marriages. God, I thank you that we have men and women in our church that we can look to as examples for what a healthy marriage looks like. God, I also know that that didn't come easy, God, and they have worked hard, God, to have a healthy marriage. God, and I thank you for the work that they put in to be healthy. And God, today I come to you and I lift up those marriages right now, Lord, that have some tension in it. God, today, as, as I've been teaching this message, God, that they've been struggling on the inside because they know that they've got to apply this in their own lives. God, I pray that today that they would do something about it. They would begin to take a step towards health. God, that they would talk to somebody about it. God, that they would grab that book and start a refresh, God, in their marriage and in their life. God, I pray over men and women in here, God, that have failed marriages in their past. God, that today's message isn't a message to beat them up about how much of a failure they are, but God, that it's a message of hope, God, of what could be. Lord, right now we ask for forgiveness for the areas in our life where we failed. 
God, where, where we feel that we bear the entire weight of that, Lord, I pray that, Lord, you would bring forgiveness and allow us to let go of the things that we need to let go of. But God, beyond that, I pray that you would help us have healthy relationships now. God, that even though there are past failures, Lord, that there can be healthy relationships here and now. God, I pray for, for those in the room that, that are either young and, and not married yet, or those who are older and not married God, I pray that they would take these things, God, and they would hide them in their heart. God, so that when they, when and if they get married, God, they've got these principles to live by. God, to safeguard their marriage. God, from from affairs of the mind, affairs of the heart, God, and affairs of the body. God, let them apply these principles in a practical way. God, so that young men, young women have incredibly healthy marriages. God, I pray for those in here today. God, that have had an affair. God, that have had an affair of the mind, have had an affair of the heart or an emotional affair, God, or even a physical affair of the body. God, I pray that you would bring healing into that relationship. God, right now, Lord, we ask forgiveness. God, there are those in the room that, that, that said, I never meant it to go that far. I never meant it to be there. That God, right now, that they would make it right with you and they would make it right with their spouse. God, maybe in here for, for that man or that woman that has been thinking about having an affair. God, that today's message would convict them so much. God, and they would begin to put safeguards in their life and put people in their life, God, that would sound the alarm, God, so that it wouldn't be possible for them to have an affair. God, I pray that at whatever point in their marriage that they are, God, that they would put these safeguards into place, God, because it's better late than never. We can start today. God, I pray that as marriages get healthier, God, that families would get healthier. God, we love you. God, thank you for your forgiveness. But God, even more than that, God, we thank you that we've got an example to follow. God, when it comes to healthy relationships. 
We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.